0: We are in episode 20 of this sermon series called The Plan, in which we are going over the entire story of the Bible from beginning to end. We've been, we started with uh, creation in September, and we're going to link up with Easter, uh, with the resurrection on Easter. And at this point in the story, we are in what's called the divided kingdom era. And our goal for this series is to understand the story that unites the whole Bible, Uh, so that we can see how they all link together, and so we can know the story that we're being invited into as Christians and what we are asking people to join with as we share the gospel with others. And the story of the Bible, the way we've been summarizing it is this. is God's plan to establish a place full of people who live out their purpose in his presence. So God made the world, and he put people in it, and he gave us the function of ruling this place on his behalf. And he wants to live here with us. And that's how things started out, but we messed it up. And we continually mess it up. And the story of the Bible is the story of God continually working to overcome our rebellion and to restore that plan. And God has been working for a while now in, in the Bible with one specific family, the Israelites. And the goal is to show the plan through them so the rest of the world can see who God is and be called to him. And at this point, this is called the divided kingdom era, when the kingdom of Israel has been split. So 10 of the tribes broke off away from David's grandson and formed the northern kingdom of Israel. But the problem that they ran into is the fact that the temple is still in the kingdom of Judah, and so they don't have God's presence in their kingdom. And so that caused them to make some changes to the way they worship God in order to to try and keep people from traveling to this now foreign nation to worship. And so the king, Jeroboam, changed the religion so that people would uh, stay loyal to him. Because it was more important to him that they be loyal to him than that they be loyal to God. So... The way we ended the story last week was knowing that that God was not going to let that stand. And God, uh, when Jeroboam died, his son became king. But then a man named Baasha rebelled and killed his son and took over. But then when Baasha's son was king, then someone rebelled and killed him and took over. And we have this, this instability because Jeroboam set this norm that the king does whatever he needs to to hold on to power. And so there's these series of assassinations and things like that, and it's really unstable until a new guy shows up uh, and takes the throne by winning a civil war. His name was Omri. And Omri was kind of the northern David. He He took over after winning a civil war. He stabilized the kingdom. He even bought a new capital, Samaria, and founded a new capital city the same way David did. And when he died, he handed off a very stable kingdom to his son. And just like Solomon, his son then took on the project of making this stable kingdom prosperous. And so we're going to be looking at the story uh, that begins with Omri's son. And as we look at that story, remember how we kind of keep our bearings as we're reading a story in the Bible. What we want to keep in mind is who is the story about? Where is their home? How can they meet with God? And what did God tell them to do? Our, reading, our initial reading is very short this time. In the 38th year of Asa, king of Judah, Ahab, son of Omri, became king of Israel, and he reigned in Samaria over 22 years. Okay, so at this point, knowing that someone is king should set up the story for us. We should be able to fill in the other blanks because we know what that arrangement is. We've talked about this. for; We've been in the same kind of arrangement for a while now. So who is the story about? The story is about Ahab and the Israelites. So in the northern kingdom, because it's most of the tribes of Israel, they're just called the Israelites. Ahab is their king, and it's, so that means it's his job to lead the people in fulfilling their purpose of following God. Where is their home? Their home is the kingdom of Israel, which is the northern portion of the kingdom. So it's not including the kingdom of Judah. Now, that, they are the, the Judites are also part of God's people, but they're not part of this story. The tricky part for the kingdom of Israel is how they can meet with God. If they want to experience the presence of God, where do they have to go? They have to go to the temple in Jerusalem. God's presence on earth physically manifests in the temple. And so if you want to worship in God's presence, there's one place you can go. Now, the Israelites have created their own shrines where they claim that God appears over these golden calves, but there's only one place that God's presence actually is on earth uh, in, that, in that special way. Now, what did God tell them to do? What did God tell Ahab to do? For the past few weeks, as we look at kings, what we've said is the king needs to obey God. And that's still true, but... For Ahab, we need to actually look, uh, we need to take a step back, because Ahab's not even going to get close to that. Because before you can obey God, you have to commit to ruling on his behalf. And what I mean, the difference there is that you have to believe that God is king and that he's in charge and you're ruling for him. See, Jeroboam would have said, I'm ruling on God's behalf. He would have claimed to be following God. He just didn't actually obey him very well. You know, like it's possible to acknowledge that the government is the government and not be good at keeping the law. That's different from saying, no, I think this should be the government. That's rebellion, right? That's the difference between crime and rebellion. So Jeroboam acknowledges that God is God, but he's not very good at obeying him. But that means the first step for a king is they have to acknowledge that God is God, right? That he is the one that they rule for. Now, the, question, the other question that we want to look at, and we haven't really talked about much with the king, is when, you've got, in, when the king is supposed to rule on God's behalf, who, who actually tells you whether they're doing it or not? Because in most kingdoms, the person who rules on the God's behalf and the person who decides what the God wants is the same person. So the king tells you what God wants, and then the king does what God told him. You know, it's all one person. But in the law of Moses, there's a distinct role that is God uses to hold his people and the kings to account. In Deuteronomy, it says, I will raise up for them a prophet like you, he's talking to Moses, from among their fellow Israelites, and I will put my words in his mouth. He will tell them everything I command him. I myself will call to account anyone who does not listen to my words that the prophet speaks in my name. Now, we have traditionally, and I think accurately, seen that as a prophecy about Jesus, but it's also talking about prophets in general and what prophets do, and that God will call people to speak on his behalf. And their authority comes from the fact that what they're saying is what God says. It's not because they hold uh, an office that's been given to them or they inherited it. It's because what they say is what God said. And and God says he's going to hold people accountable to that. So Ahab's job is to acknowledge that God is God, and to listen to God's prophets. Among many other things that a perfect king would do, he should at least do those things. Those are the ones that are relevant to Ahab's story. So now that we understand the situation and the expectations and and what success would look like in Ahab's position, let's look at how Ahab does. Ahab, son of Omri, did more evil in the eyes of the Lord than any of those before him. He not only considered it trivial to commit the sins of Jeroboam, son of Nebat, but he also married Jezebel, daughter of Ethbaal, king of the Sidonians, and began to serve Baal and worship him. Now, there's... Uh, Ahab is doing something that no other king in Israel has done yet. And it's it's important for us to understand what's going on to make that distinction because we often aren't clear on exactly what the sins of the kings of Israel are, and we mix them up. Okay, so first it says he didn't he didn't consider it trivial, or he did consider it trivial to commit the sins of Jeroboam. The sins of Jeroboam were to worship Yahweh in the wrong ways that were self-serving. But he was still worshipping Yahweh, the God of Israel, right? That was trivial to Ahab. What Ahab did was something different. So Ahab married Jezebel, the daughter of the king of the Sidonians. So that's Phoenicia. Basically, it's the, the there's this coastline country called Phoenicia that's really wealthy and involves a lot of trading. Actually, Solomon became wealthy in large part through deals with the king of Tyre. That's part of this area. And so Ahab's do, trying to be, become prosperous the same way Solomon did by making a deal with this prosperous trading country. And so he marries their daughter. And then, because we talked about with Solomon, when, when you marry a queen, she be, when you marry a princess, she becomes an ambassador, so she gets to bring her god with her. It's the same thing Solomon did. But then Ahab starts worshipping with her, which is also what Solomon did, but then Ahab takes it one step further. Ahab starts to serve Baal as the chief god. See, what would happen at other times is the Israelites would worship Yahweh as the chief god, and then they would worship all these other gods as semi-demigods, right? So it's God, you know, Yahweh and these other gods. But Yahweh was still the chief god. That's that's as far as they took it. But Ahab takes it further by actually dethroning God from the top and putting Baal in that place. What was the most important thing that Solomon did? He built a temple, right? And Ahab is the, the northern Solomon. So what, is, what does Ahab do? He set up an altar for Baal in the temple of Baal that he built in Samaria. Ahab also made an Asherah pole and did more to arouse the anger of the Lord, the God of Israel, than did all the kings of Israel before him. There isn't a temple to Yahweh, to the God of Israel, in Samaria, there's no temple for him in the capital city. His shrines are in other places. But Ahab builds a temple to Baal and he puts an altar in it because he has now shifted Israel's loyalty to Baal. That's what's happened here is now Baal is the chief god. So Ahab built his empire by transferring Israel's allegiance from God to Baal. And that's what makes Ahab something different. how he has taken Israel's rebellion to a whole other level because he is now actually breaking off the covenant. He's, he's withdrawing from the covenant, saying, We don't want to be Israel, we don't want to be Yahweh's people, we're going to be Baal's people. We don't want to be part of God's plan. We're going to be part of uh, this relationship with this God. Now, in today's secularized culture, we don't necessarily always recognize what's entailed in that. Because for some people, that can seem like, oh, it's just like switching sports teams, right? Like it's still a football team. They just wear different colors and they come from a different town. But it's, it's all the same, right? But this is not at all the same thing. To change from Yahweh, the God of Israel, to Baal is to change not just the name of the God or the origin of the God or the story, the background story of the God that you're worshiping, but it also changes who you understand God to be, who you understand humanity to be, and, and it changes everything because the God of Israel has a plan for the world. He has a plan for humanity. He calls us to be something better than we let ourselves be. He, he has a mission for us. He has something for us to aspire to, and he asks us to, to give things up, to give up what we may want in a particular moment, to be part of what is right for the world. Baal does not do that. Baal asks you to make sacrifices and to put money in the coffers and he'll give you whatever you ask for. Baal is the godfather in heaven. He makes a deal with you to give you what you want. As long as you give him what he's not going to ask you to become more than you are. He doesn't care. He just wants to get his sacrifices and to have you, you know, do the tasks that he assigns you, and, and he'll, he'll, you, know, you give him enough sacrifices, he'll give you victory in battle. He doesn't care who you're fighting or what cause you're fighting for or how just your cause is. As long as you pay the toll, you get what, he, what you ask for. It's a completely different understanding of what the relationship between humanity and God is supposed to be. It's a completely different understanding of right and wrong, of the importance of right and wrong. It, it changes everything. And that's probably a big part of why Ahab made this choice. The obvious part of it that I think we're pretty secure on saying is that he did this in order to bolster his treaty with the Phoenicians. It put him in a stronger political alliance. But it seems to me that if he's going further in this way, he's going further than he needed to for diplomatic purposes, it's probably because Ahab wants that kind of a God. He wants that kind of a religion, that kind of a relationship. He prefers a God who doesn't ask anything of him except that he pay his sacrifices and, and God will make him wealthy. God will make him prosperous. God will give him whatever he wants. It seems to be what, what Ahab wants. And so he takes this extreme step of removing Israel from the covenant. And as I read this story, I think it is because that extreme step has been taken that all of a sudden the prophets in Israel take on a different role. At this point, a prophet, God elevates a prophet in Israel, because we have talked about a lot of prophets before, but no one is really going to play the same role that this new prophet and his successor play. And we're only going to have prophets like this while Israel is following Baal it seems to be because the Israelites have left the covenant. And so they need someone to call them back on God's behalf. So now Elijah the Tishbite from Tishbe and Gilead said to Ahab, As surely as the Lord, the God of Israel lives, whom I serve, there will be neither dew nor rain in the next few years except at my word. All right, so here's what he's saying. Elijah says, hey, I represent Yahweh, the God of Israel, and I say there's going to be no rain for, until I say differently. And here's the thing. Baal is a god of thunderstorms. Right? So Baal is supposed to be in charge of the rain. So this, this is a pretty big claim. This claim cuts to the heart of whether, whether Ahab's change in religion was accurate or wise. Right, Because if, if, Elijah, if nothing happens, then Elijah can be ignored. But if what Elijah says will happen does happen, that cuts to the very heart of this, of this issue because it means that Baal's not actually in control of the storms. And guess what happens? Well, a lot of things happen, but it doesn't rain. For almost three years, there is no rain simply because Elijah said so. And Elijah represents God. And eventually, God tells Elijah to go present himself to Ahab because it's time to settle up. It's time to settle this thing. And so Elijah goes to Ahab and says, all right, we're going to settle this thing once and for all. So I want you to gather all the Israelites and the prophets of Baal at Mount Carmel, and we're going to sort this out. So Ahab sent word throughout all Israel and assembled the prophets on Mount Carmel. Elijah went before the people and said, How long will you waver between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal is God, follow him. But the people said nothing. See, this is Elijah's role. This is what the prophet does when when Israel leaves the covenant. He boldly confronted Ahab's rebellion, and he called Israel back to God. This is what the prophets do. Normally the prophets say, hey, you forgot this part of the covenant, or you're abusing this power, uh, or this, you know. They're but now he simply has to say, hey, follow God at all, on any level. Come back to God. Choose to follow him. And so uh, Elijah, devi- or Elijah proposes this test. So they're each going to sacrifice a bull and put it on an altar, and there's 450 prophets of Baal, and they're going to do everything they can to convince their God to send down fire to burn up the, the sacrifice, because that's the important part. The important part isn't the killing of the animal. The important part is the burning up of the animal, because that's the God accepting it. You remember that this is what God did with the first sacrifice of the tabernacle? Fire came out of the tabernacle and burned the sacrifice, because that shows he's accepting it. So, the, God, the, the prophets of Baal are going to do all of this and try and get God to burn up the sacrifice, and then Elijah's going to have a go. Lonely old Elijah. And they even do this on Mount Carmel, which is right across the border from Phoenicia, which is Baal's homeland. So he gives Baal every advantage, and the prophets of Baal, they do all of their, their ceremony. They're jumping around they're yelling because they think they actually do have to get Baal's attention because Baal can get distracted. They start cutting themselves. They do all kinds of things, and eventually they give up. So then Elijah takes over. And, sorry, I just realized I missed one thing. We need to update the people because now we realize that Elijah is uh, an important part of the story. Now he's carrying the story forward because he's calling people into, to follow the plan. And so the story is about Ahab and Elijah and the Israelites. And Elijah stands up to make this Uh, with this sacrifice, and he has them drench it in water, just soak it, because he wants to make this as clear as possible what's really going on, and then he makes this prayer. the time of the sacrifice, prophet Elijah stepped forward and prayed, Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known today that you are God in Israel, and that I am your servant, and have done all these things at your command. Answer me, O Lord, answer me, so these people will know that you, Lord, are God and that you are turning their hearts back again. So what's about to happen is supposed to serve the purpose specifically of showing them who the true God is. He's put everything into this moment. Then the fire of the Lord fell and burned up the sacrifice, the wood, the stones, and the soil, and also licked up the water in the trench. When all the people saw this, they fell prostrate and cried, The Lord, he is God. The Lord, He is God. Then Elijah commanded them, Seize the prophets of Baal, don't let anyone get away. They seized them, and Elijah had them brought down to the Kishon Valley and slaughtered there. We're going to talk about that violence a little bit later. But the point of this story, the point of what's happening here, is that God showed up on Mount Carmel to remind Israel that God is still in control. Everything was stacked against Him, they were closer to Baal's homeland than to. Then to the temple, they, you know, his thing was drenched in water. There was only one lonely prophet, and yet God showed up, and Baal didn't. And this was such conclusive proof that everyone present, presumably including Ahab, agrees with, with Elijah and participates in the killing of the prophets of Baal. Because now the prophets of Baal have been revealed to be misleading the people away from the only true God and away from their purpose. And so, as, as conclusively as could be demonstrated, they now have proof that Yahweh, the God of Israel, is God and Baal is not. I mean, how many of us wish that we could have that conclusive proof or be, like, have that proof to us or be able to bring that proof to others, right? Like, how awesome would it be To be able to call down fire to prove to people that God is is real, that God is, you know, that would be an awesome evangelism tool, right? I'm not sure we can be trusted with the ability to call down fire, but, and you would think, right, okay, so they all see this, they all see the proof, it's irrefutable proof, and so now, because of that, all the Israelites uh, repent, and Ahab certainly is convinced, and he leads Israel back into the covenant, and Israel's back on track, at least for a generation, right? I mean, uh, that kind of miracle's got to be good for at least one generation of repentance, right? Oh, you've heard this story. Now Ahab told Jezebel everything Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with a sword. So Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah to say, may the gods deal with me, be it ever so severely, if by this time tomorrow I do not make your life like that of one of them. It's interesting thing We don't know exactly what Ahab's what Ahab was thinking at Mount Carmel. He didn't stop any, any, anything that was going on um, as they were killing the prophets of Baal. He seems to have participated. But it's, it's not uncommon for a person to have a powerful experience and then go home and talk to someone about it and suddenly it's not, they start to have second thoughts, right? Suddenly it, it, you know, they're wondering, well, maybe they start to come down off of that experience a bit, Right especially when you've got Jezebel, whose reaction to this irrefutable proof of, God, uh, of Yahweh being God is to, say, it is to get angry and to want to murder Elijah. She couldn't have sent this message without, it be, without Ahab's okay, which tells us that ultimately, the reaction that Ahab and Jezebel decide on to this amazing moment is that they double down on their allegiance to Baal. Now the question is, as as I look at this, and I wonder, why? Why would a rational person go through an experience like this and reject it? And to be honest, the Bible doesn't tell us. It doesn't give us that insight. So I'm going to speculate. I'm just going to acknowledge it as speculation. This is based on what I know of myself and my experience of human nature. If I had to guess, I would say that it's because Ahab and Jezebel Cared less about which God was real than they did about which God they wanted to be real. That it wasn't, in the end, they still wanted Baal to be God because they still wanted a relationship with that kind of God. They still wanted a God who would give them whatever they want as long as they paid the toll. They didn't want to follow a God who was going to call them to be something different. They didn't, be, they didn't want to follow a God who was going to ask them to follow his plan instead of theirs. They knew what kind of God they wanted, and they would rather stick with that than stick with the evidence of which God was actually real. They're, they're dedicated to the kind of plan they want to be a part of. It's their own plan, not God's. So at this point, as uh, Elijah, Elijah received this, this message, and you have to remember, Elijah is this amazing, bold prophet who steps out of the wilderness and confronts the king and says, you know, it's not going to rain unless I say so. And then he goes off, and, and he, as he's hiding during the drought, he's miraculously fed by ravens, and then he goes and hides with a, a widow, and God miraculously gives her oil and enough to, to feed her him throughout this whole drought. And then he miraculously brings that widow's son back to life. And, and then the Mount Carmel thing and all of this, right? And so how does this bold, powerful prophet respond when he gets this angry note from Jezebel? Elijah was afraid and ran for his life. When he came to Beersheba in Judah, he came through a broom bush, sat down under it and prayed that he might die. I've had enough, Lord, he said. Take my life. I am no better than my ancestors. I can relate to that. Have you ever had a moment where you've been been putting up with a lot, you've been fighting the good fight, you've been enduring, you've been been pushing your way forward, doing what God's calling you to do, and you you know what you know you're supposed to be right, and then all of a sudden you hit one defeat. Maybe it's the tenth or the dozenth, or maybe it's just one, but it just hits you in a way that takes the wind out of you just knocks you down. Maybe it's because it's the latest in a long line of defeats and it's just one too many. Maybe it's because you were so certain that things were going to go the right way this time. There's so many reasons why, but every once in a while, you'll just hit a brick wall that just really knocks you down. Right? I totally get where Elijah's at in this moment. Even in spite of everything he's seen, because at this point, what more could he do Right? He had a trial in front of the king of Israel, and he, you know, through him, God beat 450 prophets of Baal. The thing was drenched in water. They were right on the border with the like, what more could he possibly have done to convince the king to lead them back to God? And things got worse. I I could totally understand Elijah just being hit in the gut from that. And so what we find in this reaction, this, this normally very bold man, is he fled Jezeb, Jezebel's persecution, and he despaired for his message. So at this point, Elijah is at the southern end of the kingdom of Judah, and so God, uh, God actually sends an angel to feed him. Or he, he falls asleep, and God sends an angel to give him food, And to give him strength for the journey. Because what the first thing Elijah needs is a nap and a snack. And then he journeys on down to Mount Sinai. Mount Sinai is the mountain where God's presence waited for the Israelites as they came out of Egypt. It's where Moses experienced God, and it's where the presence of God came from Mount Sinai into the tabernacle. He's, He's going to have a mountaintop experience with God. Literally, it's where we get the term mountaintop experience. So he goes to the mountain... And he gets that mountaintop experience. God shows up in the same with the same um, elements that he that Moses experienced. There's an earthquake. There's fire. There's wind. There's all this chaos. And then it says there was the sound of stillness. The kind of the echoing reverberations as this whole cacophony, all this noise, ends. And when Elijah heard it, he pulled his cloak over his face and went out and stood at the mouth of the cave. Then a voice said to him, what are you doing here, Elijah? He replied, I have been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, torn down your altars, and put your prophets to death with the sword. I am the only one left, and now they are trying to kill me too. This is the burden that Elijah is carrying. And notice the uh, pronouns. Notice what he's saying, and I'm not criticizing Elijah for this, but it tells us his state of mind. I have been very zealous for the Lord Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, torn down your altars, and put your prophets to death with a sword. I am the only one left, and now they are trying to kill me too. Why has Elijah lost hope? Because Elijah has been overwhelmed. Because Elijah has done everything Elijah can do, and it hasn't fixed the problem. And now they're trying to kill him too. Elijah is out of resources. Elijah is out of options. And so Elijah has the spirit of his ability to fix the situation. And I think it's important for us to recognize that aspect of what he's saying. That Elijah is worn out and Elijah can't fix the problem. For us to understand how God responds, because God's response is otherwise a little bit puzzling. But here's what God says. The Lord said to him, Go back the way you came and go to the desert of Damascus. When you get there, anoint Hazael king over Aram. Also anoint Jehu son of Nimshi king over, Elijah, uh, king over Israel. And anoint, anoint, wow, anoint Elisha son of Shephat from abel Moholah, to succeed you as prophet. The first thing he says is go home and I want you to anoint these three people for their role in my plan. Which is, first of all, a reminder, oh yeah, there are other people with roles in God's plan. Wait, my job isn't to go and accomplish this, like, my next step isn't to go and accomplish this thing, it's to go and appoint people who are going to accomplish things. And as you read what he's saying, if you know the story that's coming then you will see what God is also telling him, that he's anointing these three people because these three people will play key roles in the defeat of the Amri dynasty and the defeat of Baal worshippers. Because he says, Jehu will put to death any who escape the sword of Hazael, and Elisha will put to death any who escape the sword of Jehu. See, Hazael is going to be king of Aram, and he's going to uh, grow in power, and he's going to start attacking Israel and taking territory and and destroying their power. And then Jehu is going to lead a rebellion against Ahab's son, and he is going to massacre Ahab's family down to the last person. He's going to execute Jezebel, and then he's also going to kill all the Baal worshippers. It's going to be just this bloody, bloody thing. And Elisha is going to be active in carrying on Elijah's ministry through the whole thing. And so God has a plan for how he's going to deal with Ahab and deal with the Baal worshippers and everything. But it, it, the plan just isn't for Elijah to be the one that finishes it. So he, he kind of lays out for Elijah what the plan is going to be. And to recognize Elijah it doesn't have the central role in it all the way through. And then he also tags on this little little comment, yet I reserve 7,000 in Israel, all whose names have not bowed down to Baal and whose mouths have not kissed him. Don't forget, there's also 7,000 people, at least, in Israel that you aren't aware of that are serving me. So it's not just you. Now, to be clear, God doesn't shame Elijah for his despair. He doesn't doesn't criticize him. He doesn't make him repent or anything. it's, It's understandable. He just opens up Elijah's perspective to recognize that even though he feels overwhelmed personally, that it's not up to him. It's not all on him to solve this problem. God met Elijah at Mount Sinai to remind Elijah that God was still in control. Because see, Elijah had, spent such a, had been such a central role in what God had been doing so far. He forgot that God doesn't depend on him or that, that God works in other people. Because Eli- Elijah stood up and said, it won't rain unless I say so, and it worked. But it worked because God made it work. And so Elijah needed to be reminded that God works through people other than Elijah. God's, and God's plan will be fulfilled. And so Elijah leaves Mount Sinai, and he journeys back into Israel, and he continues on in his mission. But ultimately it is through um, Jehu and Elisha into second kings that the Amra dynasty and the Baal worshippers are actually defeated. But I want to stop here because I think this teaches us some really important lessons about what it means to follow God and what God asks of us. The first thing that we learn from this story that I think is really, really important is that it is possible for people to understand exactly who God is and still reject Him? I have, I've heard perspectives out there that ultimately everyone is going to be saved because an, anybody who truly experiences God uh, will embrace Him. And so, whether it's you know, maybe in the next life, anybody who sees God will embrace Him and will want to be saved, and, and ultimately everybody will be saved. And I think that would be awesome. I would love for that to be the case. And maybe it is. I'm I could be wrong. But what I see in Scripture, what I see in Scripture is that human beings can see God for exactly who He is and and still say, I don't want that. Personally, I think that hell exists because of humans' choices, not because of God's choice. That we can see God for exactly who he is and say, I know you're real, but I don't want to be a part of that. I flat out don't want your plan. I want my plan. And so it's not a matter of agreeing with facts about who is the real God. It's a matter of choosing what kind of life you want to live and what kind of plan you want to be a part of and what kind of principles you want to serve and what kind of kingdom you want to build. And it is possible for people to see God for exactly who he is and to reject him. We see that in scripture. We see that in the ministry of Jesus. And what that means, the the next level of what that means for us is that it's possible for God's people to do everything right and still face rejection and failure. This is why Jesus says, if they rejected me, they'll reject you. Because you could reflect God perfectly to your neighbor, and if that neighbor doesn't want God, they will reject you too. Now, I don't think we should jump to that assumption every time that we face rejection, because it's also possible you didn't reflect God in that moment. So you shouldn't jump to that assumption, but what that means is that we can do everything right and still face rejection. Uh, rejection and failure and those are the those are the moments where like Elijah I think we're most easily uh, knocked off off track those are the moments that can be the most discouraging when you say I've gone over it a million times in my head and I don't think I did it wrong I don't I mean I said the right things I, I, I represented God the best I possibly could and they still said they still rejected me or they still rejected God because there is no guaranteed way to bring people to Jesus. There is no guaranteed way to bring a revival. The reality that keeps, genuinely keeps me up at night, there is no guaranteed way for me to raise my kids to love Jesus. I can't make that happen. But here's the comforting message that we learn from the story of Elijah, is that God doesn't expect me to make that happen. That's not the job. God doesn't expect us to solve that problem. He invites us to trust in his plan. I can't make my kids follow Jesus their whole lives. I can do every, you know, use every opportunity God has given me to build that into them, and I can also trust him that there will be a lot of other adults that he brings into their lives. There will be a lot of other people that he brings into their lives to influence them to follow Jesus because it's not just me. I do everything I can in the opportunities I've been given, but I also am not expected to be the all-sufficient Savior for anyone because there's only one all-sufficient Savior. It's not me. And so my job is to do what God has placed in front of me the most faithful way I can and to trust Him that he is going to do what is best and what is right through all of the people that he works through and all of the power that he has. But there is one difference, and it is the biggest possible difference there could be between our hope and Elijah's hope. Because all Elijah really got was to know that there would be people who would defeat, uh, defeat his, the people who were opposing God and kill them and take power instead of them. And even, even the people who took power instead of Ahab weren't that much better. It was like marginally better. That's not the hope that we have. We have hope in a different form. See, in the New Testament, there's a story about Jesus. And a young man comes to him and asks what it takes to get into the kingdom of heaven. And this young man is rich. See, he, he's very similar to Ahab where he wants to be prosperous, and he wants a relationship that will, that will allow him to hold on to his wealth. And Jesus says, you're going to have to give that up. And the young man rejects him. He walks away. And Jesus said to his disciples, truly, I tell you, it is hard for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of heaven. I think a way you could connect that with what we've been seeing is it's hard for somebody who wants Baal to choose God, right? It's hard for someone who is dedicated to their life to this other way of living to want God and his plan. It's hard. When the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished and asked, who then can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, with man, this is impossible, but with God, all things are possible. With God, all things are possible. That means that while there are people that I cannot reach, that you cannot reach, there is no one that God cannot reach. We still have the ability to reject him, but God has so much more at his disposal than simply what you and I can do. Through Jesus, God has the power to reach the people we can't reach. The power of the gospel, the power of the Holy Spirit, the power of God that changes lives. And so if there's a person in your life that you feel like just can't be reached, know that God can reach them. Continue to be faithful. Continue to trust. Continue to pray. Continue to to use the opportunities he gives you. Know that God can reach anyone. And if you are a person who feels like you can't be reached who feels like you're too far gone and just can't be brought back and you can't seem to fit through the eye of that needle. God can reach you. We believe that every time you hear the gospel preached, God is calling you to respond. So I'm, I'm asking you now to think about what is God calling you to do? What does God place in front of you? What do your next steps look like? Maybe it means you know, Maybe as God, God is calling you to witness to someone who needs to be called to God. Maybe as God is calling you to be a, a bold prophet in some way. Maybe God is calling you to um, pick yourself back up on, uh, from that mountain cave and head back into the fray. I don't know what God has put in front of you. Maybe God is calling you to come to him for the very first time. Today is the best day to give your life to Jesus. Whatever God's calling you to do, I encourage you to accept that call and give you a couple ways that you can respond to God's call through this congregation. First of all, you can give your life to Christ this morning. If God's calling you to, to trust him and to follow him for the first time, we would love to walk you through that. We would love to pray with you. We'd love to baptize you. We'd love to, to walk you through that. And if you're online uh, with us, we would encourage you to get in contact with us or talk to a Christian that you trust to make that decision. If you're a follower of Jesus, but you need help, you need uh, uh, you know, support, you need people to go through this journey with, because like Elijah, none of us can do it alone. That's what we have our small groups and service teams for. We can do things together. We can do the work together. We can pray together. We can study together. We can support each other. If you want to join one of those groups, you can mark that on your connection card, and we can get, you, get in touch with you. Finally, if you're looking for a family, a family that does this struggle together, that walks this path together, that supports each other, that prays for each other, that, you know, sympathizes with each other and, and faces this battle together. That's who this congregation is seeking to be, and we would love for you to be a part of that. And so you can use your Connect card to sign up for our Connect class where we, uh, we just talk for about an hour and a half over lunch about what, uh, what it means to be a part of this church and, and how you can join with us. And you can place your membership with our congregation. So now as we stand and sing, I encourage you to consider what is God calling you to do? Please join us.